right? So you have different versions of kind of uh, truishness in there along the way. So if you're an art person, uh, it's really good to look at this. This is a square side, of, uh, and the slides were originally 16 by 9, so um, we had to squish it. But if you look at the panorama of it, there, there, we have even more paintings in the picture. And so it's this art gallery with people standing in front with the paintings and the canvas. Sometimes the painting's right, the canvas is off, sometimes the painting is off. But in some cases, people aren't tilting their heads when they should be, and everybody else is tilting their heads the other way. It's just kind of a commentary visually about uh, how we adapt to, to um, things and our perceptions of things. Ladies and gentlemen, a world-class comedian has entered the room, Jacob Parnell. <laughs> <laughs> How'd it go last night, man? It was fun. Good. It was really good. good. We've got a whole trend now of, of preachers going into stand-up comedy, which I think, is, <laughs> I think that's amazing. <laughs> so, uh, all right, we got one minute, and then we'll kick off. My number one fan is back. What is up? What's up? Right, well, I've got nine o'clock, guys. So let's go ahead and go after it. Um, people, others will join us, I'm sure. Look at this. We got pictures. People taking pictures, selfies, and everything. This is the place to be. Oh, okay. <laughs> hey, photo pump. Lean in. See if you can get into their picture. <laughs> okay. There. Come on in. All right. Um, as we kick off today, uh, I'm going to introduce somebody to you, and he's going to talk to you for a minute or two, kind of to start. Uh, and they're going to be featured later in the talk about when we talk about money and finance and how to uh, multiply resources uh, and things like that. Uh, Gary Shears with the Solomon Foundation. And uh, here's the mic. So come on up here so they can hear you. Um, amazing, amazing ministry. And if you're interested in multiplying your, your resources, uh, this is a guy to talk to. Okay, so let me turn it over to him. Take it away, Gary. The Solomon Foundation is who I represent, and I travel in about eight to nine states to present this ministry. Solomon Foundation, what is it? We are a church extension fund, and that's defined by the Securities Act of 33 and 34, where a group of churches, affiliated churches, or a denomination can then form one of these entities. What we do is, and I'm going to identify it through our core values. Number one core value is we want to honor God. Number two core value is we want to see people come to Jesus and be baptized into Christ. Number three core value is to provide the best interest rate possible. And that we do. If you take a look at our brochure, find us online, you'll find very good interest rates that you can multiply your money and see your money grow. Number four core value is to help churches take the next step. And that means if a church needs a loan, and the bank, normally, banks will not give loans to churches. It's very difficult. And we then step into that and provide some financing as we identify churches in which to invest in. Number five core value is to have fun. <laughs> so these interest rates are such that they start at 2.85 for a demand account and go all the way up into the fours, 4.75, 4.8. 
and then beyond that, depending on the time value and the amount that, that, that you put on deposit. Now, what is the impact of this? We have seen churches continue to grow and flourish as they add to their space. You can only get so many bodies in, on a campus. And if they need to expand, and you know the cost of materials, cost of construction, you know the difficulty of trying to get a loan, and so we step in and we see these congregations continue to grow. We have seen over 11 years as we have closed loans and then we count the baptisms going forward, over 70,000 people baptized into Christ in these congregations who have got a loan with us. Unfortunately, many times we see churches and missions entities uh, not get the best bang for their buck. Last week, I talked to a missions team who has money on deposit with us, but carries $370,000 in a checking account. We're in the process of helping them move $300,000, and if they move it to Solomon, they will then earn 1000 a month on that deposit. So instead of going out <laughs> trying to raise more dollars, why not just let the money do its work and the impact is that kingdom people have kingdom money and with Solomon can have a kingdom impact. I'm going to pass a few of these out if that's okay. Go see this man. Go see this man. Incredible ministry and I'll talk about how they kind of helped us uh, along the way. Without him, our story reads very differently uh, at NVC. All right. Um, I want to go back to a couple of things because I was, I was kind of debriefing myself uh, on, on yesterday and I felt like I kind of gave short uh, I, I, over, I went past things too fast because I was trying to move too quickly. Uh, and so I want to go back to um, something we talked about yesterday. And uh, it's this. We talked about churches being measured, uh, the truish-ism, meaning people say this, but it's not really true. Churches, are, uh, the size of a church is best measured by attendance. And we talked about what, some of the reasons why that's not the best way to do it. It's not, it's a way. It's like, if you use a, an analogy of a, a human going into the doctor's office to see if they're in good health, uh, you can uh, have your blood pressure taken, and that's a measure of, okay, if you have high blood pressure, that could be a sign that you've got something wrong, right? Uh, but if you walk in and you want to know if you're in great health and all you do is take the blood pressure measurement, then you're going to walk away thinking you're in perfect health when in reality you might have pancreatic cancer, and you don't know, right? So there's a way of being thorough, and what we, what we did was... We realized uh, both, and this, this started in the think tanks uh, 10 years ago. People started to notice that, the, uh, uh, that there was a gap. They kept having the same amount of, of people attend, but it seemed like it was a different group all the time. So we talked about, yeah, uh, what was it? Uh, oh, I think a number 10 years ago uh, was two, two times a month was kind of the, the, uh, the reality. The current uh, in California is 0.8 times a month to attend church for people who identify themselves as members of church. Right? That's a huge shift. Now, part of that's people's church habits got broken during COVID, right? So they're not used to it. But if you have a church of 200, if you're doing the math uh, in attendance, uh, and you've, you've got 200 kind of consistently... If you are average in terms of the amount of newbies you've got and stuff like that, then in theory, 
You don't really have a church of 200. You, you got a church of 800. And if you don't realize that, then you end up uh, really struggling. And so at our place, we have an unusually high gap between those two numbers. And so what we started to do was to try to say, okay, well, what, first of all, what's that about? Why aren't people coming to church more? The other piece of it was to simply say, okay, what it also tells us is we have a, a completely oversized impact and influence in the lives of people for the size, quote-unquote, the traditional way of measuring a, ten, uh, a church's size. Now, I talked yesterday about how, you know, so if you put our attendance at 350, our actual under-influence number is there. Now, what that means, 90 days, you check in a kid, you go to a group, you go to church, give money, uh, or serve. Okay, that, that's how that's how you you do it. That's a big gap. So what you do is if you staff here, which is what most churches do, uh, you're going to have to find you're going to have a hard time reaching that crowd with that those resources and that structure. Right? So now I also mentioned you don't want these numbers to be closer together. It's counterintuitive, right? What that means is if they are close together, uh, you don't have any new people here. You have, probably don't have any young people and you have uh, a lot of veteran people who've been there forever, okay? Similarly, per capita giving rate. You don't want that to be very high. I don't, you don't want it to be super low either, but if, there, if, you're, if your per capita giving rate is like, say, $60 a week, that tells me you have a lot of old people, very few young people. Uh, if it's at 0.5 or, or like a five bucks a head, then you don't, you don't have any maturity there, you have nobody with any money there, and you're underachieving dramatically. So. If you're, what you want to see is this nice kind of healthy, hey, we've got enough resources to, to make things happen and continue to grow, but we don't, we don't want, uh, uh, we don't want to see a thing where basically the, the, the chosen just kind of get together every week and we don't have anybody new coming in or out, all right? right. Now on that slide, <laughs> uh, I added blessability. Let me talk to you about that for a second. Um, let me get, see if I can get to it here. There it is. All right. So. My blessability, if you go back to the scriptures in Joshua, right before they're getting ready to cross over the Jordan River to go fight the battle of Jericho. Big battle's coming. Joshua gets everybody together in Israel. And he says, all right, everybody, sanctify yourselves. For tomorrow God will do great wonders among you. He doesn't ask them to sharpen the swords, get more armies, make sure their shields are in place. Uh, Blessability means you're, you're honoring the Lord in how you behave, how you treat people, how you manage your resources. Uh, you're staying blessable and usable by God. So this is something that gets overlooked. A lot of times I think church leaderships think, uh, hey, we've had a scandal that happened in the church, for instance, and, uh, and so we want to protect the reputation of the church, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going we're gonna to kind of kick the dirt over it, not deal with it. Uh, and just pretend like it didn't happen and apologizes and move on, but they don't really deal with the sin in the camp. And they continue to operate in such a way that dishonors God and then don't understand why they aren't blessed by God or they mistreat their ministers or mistreat, uh, you know, women, kids, minorities, whoever it is. Uh, the mistreatment of people is something God takes very seriously. You may remember when uh, we fellas are told to honor our wives and to, um, uh, to, to be a blessing to them rather than harm them so that our prayers won't be hindered, right? So a lot of times people work on strategy, but they don't, they don't pay attention to the character piece, the integrity piece. 
that is not only important to God, in my experience, it dramatically impacts success. The more blessable we are, the more blessing we tend to get. All right? So I would say, in addition to some of these other measures, I would take a look at every, every time that you're crafting a strategy, do an honest assessment of where people are integrity-wise. Okay? So from an integrity standpoint, uh, if you're going into a big venture at some point, I would, I, would, I would just make sure, just like Joshua does. All right, everybody. If there's something going on in your life, if there's something going on in the leadership, if there's something, we need to sanctify ourselves. Okay, before we go into battle, that's what we're going to do. All right, and I think God, God will honor that. Uh, another one that we, we talked about, and I just kind of uh, glossed over this. The, the idea is that if I just sit there and I lecture to you enough on who you ought to be, why aren't you more this? Uh, why, are, why aren't you, uh, uh, you know, we need to be more generous. Okay, that's a way you can approach it, right? Uh, you know what, uh, we need to look, our church needs to look like its community. Right? Uh, that's a way, and, and you can certainly try that. Okay, my experience has been that people respond more to who you tell them they are. And if they think that you think that they're primarily, say, stingy, lazy, apathetic, racist, whatever the thing is, they become who you tell them they are. Just like if you're raising a child. So, a man, Brian, over here brought his daughter. My advice to him as a young parent, he didn't ask for it, but here it is, is I would try to, I would try to, to help her see herself as cherished in their sight, loved by their parents, uh, uh, beautiful in the eyes of God. Um, hey, you're, you're, you're an honest kid. We are honest people. So, for instance, at the Spivey house, lying is a, uh, almost a capital offense in our house. Okay? We, it's like, look, you, you don't want to lie. So you can give me bad news. Dad, I messed up. Here's what happened. I'm sorry. I'm not going to do it again. That's way better than, than lying to me. And, and, and the refrain is, you're spivey. We are honest people. We're honest. We're honest. We're honest. We're honest. Then they start seeing themselves as an honest person, right? It shapes an identity. So if, you, if, if, the, if they believe that their own pastor doesn't like them, they start not liking the pastor. The feeling becomes mutual. The trust breaks down. But if you talk, to, I mean, you, every, almost every time we get up to do anybody's announcing giving, guys, we appreciate so much the generosity of this church over the years. We've always been a generous church. And so this is our opportunity to, to demonstrate that by, by, you know, giving to something that we all love, et cetera, et cetera. That's a totally different uh, way. It shapes an entirely different group of people than getting up. And yes, we like every other church underachieving giving. I should have put up here as a truism. Oh, people are, don't have any more money to give. There's a lie for you. That's not even a truism. That's a that's a load of something. All right, that's a bad. Uh, if you don't believe me, go check their Instagram account. See how many vacations they've been on this year and everything else. And most people, if you live out here on the West Coast, are extremely wealthy in real estate and other things. That people absolutely have more money to give. It's not even close. So. Um, I wanted to just clarify that. Okay, what I was talking about is when you're trying to create a certain culture in the church, when you, uh, you save your moments where you've got to go upside their head for things that really, really, really count, and it should be fairly rare. 
the rest of the time trying to create a sense of identity by through almost through blessing and demonstrating love and, and good faith in them is going to get you further. Okay, now. Um, to the point about the Solomon Foundation here. The truishism is that preservation or protection is good stewardship in the Bible. Okay, We're being good stewards. When we, the more money we end up with in our checking account, uh, the more uh, uh, good stewards we are. There, there's a, uh, I, I have been a consultant. To, I don't know. I mean, informally or formally, probably 100 churches of Christ over the years. I would say that the average church of Christ... Uh, even if they're down below 50 people, is sitting on usually two to $300,000 or more in the bank. They have no staff. If they do, they have one, and they're grossly underpaid. Um, they're usually sitting in a building that is worth millions, and they pride themselves for being good stewards. Well, we've all, we all know the story of the parable of the talents, right? Everybody's given a different amount of money, Master goes away, says, hey, invest it for me. When I come back, we'll see how we did. The guy that is viewed as the wicked, lazy servant does what? He buries it in the mattress. He preserves it. The, the faithful stewards are the ones who what? They multiply. So what I would encourage you to do is to take stewardship and run it through everything that you do. I mean, to maximize whatever it is that your church is doing. Everything. Think about where you put your deposits. So like what, what Gary just said, let's say that a church has a half a million dollars in the bank. And they take it to U.S. Bank and get 0.05% on it versus 5% on it. Okay? That's what? Uh, at least 25 grand per year difference. Don't tell me you're a good steward when literally changing the routing number on your checking account would produce that much more revenue. You're not. You're foolish. Add to that the fact that uh, when you put it on deposit with people like the Solomon Foundation, the funds are not being used to build strip clubs and porn sites. They're being used to build churches. So you're leveraging your own resources for the sake of the kingdom, right? So even the money that you put in the bank is being used for good things to help churches like mine or yours build and move forward. Um, things that uh, I, would, I would bring it to how you handle your real estate, the way that you compensate your staff, the way that you challenge givers. Uh, I got a picture I'm going to show you here. This is our church. This is our little journey, 12 years in, in one little uh, uh, photo up here on the on the top left. That's the opening night of anything resembling our church There's 16 of us in there. They're not all in the picture. I think we've got like 12 in the picture um, That's at uh, what was then Hidden Valley Christian Church uh, Some of you guys know Peter Wilson. That's him up there playing the guitar uh, With Lindsay his wife and that's my white collar. You see I was wearing apparently a rugby style shirt That's all I really remember about that night other than being completely terrified at what we were doing um, you know, faith isn't necessarily never being afraid. It's not letting your fear uh, keep you from doing what God wants you to do. And so we went ahead and did it. That church building we were in, we did not know at the time, would become ours. They would give that to us. It was a dying Christian church. Maybe 50 people mad at each other. They ended up giving us the facility free and clear. 
and about $100,000 that they had in the bank. At the moment they did that, we were absolutely on life support. Like we were starving to death. Been, a lot of us hadn't made, I probably didn't make more than $1,000 in a month for that whole year. It was brutal. We were all starving, everybody. And it was, we did it act style. So it was like the offerings came in, chopped it four ways. There you go. We're, we're done. There were four kind of original founding ministers, right? But they step in and they take a leap from a stewardship standpoint. And the conversation we had was around the parable of the talents. You have a big building, you've got some cash, and you've got some maturity. We have no gray hair at all at that point in time. We had kids, we had youth, we had potential, uh, energy, and we got along with each other. <laughs> and so they ended up giving us the building, which we ended up selling down the road for three and a half million dollars uh, to another church. So we added, kept the church in the building, and then we moved from there and built this, okay, for ten and a half million. So, uh, this is where where I preached last Sunday. Okay, we go from this to that, simply in part because Hidden Valley had the guts to do something very few churches want to do. So, if people want to, there there are really two or three heroes uh, in the history of our church. Solomon Foundation is one of them. Um, for, for being willing to not only help us build that thing on the right, but also when COVID hit and we've, we're forced to, we have no revenue and we're locked down for a year and a half, right as, we lo- right as we open the building, working with us to make sure that we survived that. Okay. You think Bank of America cares? That <laughs> 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 would say Bank of America on it right now <laughs> if, uh, if, if, if we were actually dealing with a normal bank, right? Uh, but, but, but this is down here, a theater company. We started in the building. This is, uh, is that all shook up there? Can you tell, hon? Yeah. yeah. But what you would see here, there's about 20 teenagers on the stage. Um, uh, packed house doing a, a, a production inside. So that's the inside of the room. Okay, all of that, that happened several different ways. One of them was we had to figure out, we've got all these talented people who are, are kind of at the top of their game. Uh, and could make a lot more money, and we're going to lose them if we don't find a way to compensate them. And we had to start thinking about, okay, how do we pay them without using money? It's hard to do, right? And so it took coming up with a, all right, we're going to sit down and we're going to find ways to do it. How can we do it? So coming up with things like, hey, what if we, um, what if we helped one of them buy a house, uh, but we don't put any money into it, we use the Hidden Valley building, uh, as basically to show that we're credible, we let the house be the collateral, so it's not attached to the building in any way. Uh, and so the, the, the pastor makes the down payment, makes the payments, makes, uh, takes care of it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but they get all the equity in the house, assuming there's a vesting period or whatever, right? Well, so what ends up happening is through being able to think through things like that, you're able to hang on to high-quality talent without it costing the church any money at all. None. And your pastors can end up way better off than if you were, had them on the old 4% raise plan. They can end up way better off. And there are some that go, well, I don't want them to be that well off. That scares me. Uh, is that good stewardship? Uh, what, what claim would you have to the money when they're taking the bulk of the risk, making the payments, including the interest on whatever the payments are? Right? So then... 
if they ever move on, and you can put a vesting period or something there, they need to be there five years or something like that, or it escalates. But there are ways for you to do that. Sometimes it's uh, allowing them to do something. We have several on our staff that work two thirds time, one third time, half time, you know, different quotients, and they, they have a side hustle that, that we give them some freedom to do. Works for us because we can pay them less, works for them because they can make more than if they were just working for us. And it, all it requires is a little open-mindedness and a little bit of flexibility in their schedule. Uh, sometimes being willing to work with people if they're in the childbearing years uh, and giving a little bit more remote stuff. Uh, working with them on, on, on those kinds of things, childcare. If you have a preschool in your building, please don't charge the minister and his wife to put their kid in there. Don't do that. Uh, uh, but I, my mind goes back to John Mulligan and I. I don't know if you guys know John. John's uh, worked at Home Net, Hope Network. We worked together in Dallas at, at Highland Oaks. He, um, we were at a church in Oklahoma uh, consulting out in the middle of nowhere. And the issue on the table was they had a minister who had been there for, it was like 30 years or something, and he had asked them for a raise. And the eldership was splitting over the idea of giving him a raise. He had asked for $5,000, okay? Anybody want to guess what he was making? What, what does the number start with? How much do you think he was making? 22,000. How much? 20-some-thousand, 22. Bingo. Wow. Yeah. And they didn't want him to be materialistic, was the concern. And John and I sat there. And our, our heads did the truish thing, right? <laughs> Materialistic? What are we talking about? Oh, he's going to go from like 28 to 32 or something. I mean, come on, guys. Uh, and so our prediction is if you don't give it to him, he's going to end up leaving, the church is going to split, and you're going to be done anyway. <laughs> I think you ought to give him $20,000, to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, at least. Um, and, of course, they ignored us. He left. Church split. They're gone. Wow. Right? Stewardship is not just about preserving. Trying to make sure your minister stays poor. I don't think, I don't think uh, at least in the churches of Christ, people, I don't see a lot of early retirees from the ministry. Okay? We're not in danger of people getting to uh, living wild lives of licentiousness because they got a $5,000 raise. But replacing them can be brutally difficult, very expensive, and take forever. Okay? Is your building sitting empty most of the time? Are you in a building that is too large for you? Should you consider a merger? Uh, in here, uh, that's a secular-owned coffee house in the bottom, uh, the Ritz Theater. This is our mayor, by the way. I just happened to turn around and take a shot at the building. Mayor happened to be walking through the intersection with his wife. Um, uh, it's the mayor of Escondido. He had just come out of the building. We, we had hosted a big area-wide panel on sex trafficking with the media and everybody in there. It was a great, great event. Uh, we run uh, north of 100 events other than church in that building every year. It's moving all the time because we want it to be used, right? Something to think about as you go through. Um, all right, got to hustle. Truishism, next. The next gen wants their own thing. The truth is next gen wants to be part of the main thing. What I mean by this is the days of trying to put young people over in their own service have a youth service. Everything is the youth group doing its own thing by itself or over. Long time ago. And I think it was accentuated by COVID, actually. Um, they, they want to feel like they're part of the church. So we've never really allowed them to be uh, off on their own that much. They have their own thing on Sunday night. 
But the driver of Sunday night is Sunday morning and the midweeks. Uh, the other stuff, the softball teams, the, the, the social piece of it that ties them together. And if you show up to our church and you're a young person, you will in very short order be paired up with two or three people who are a little older than you are. Not lots, but a little. Uh, and so the young professionals are working with the teens. The teens are working with the, the littles. Uh, the, the people in their 30s are working with the young pros and so on and so forth all the way up. So everybody's got a Paul. Everybody's got a Timothy. And I, if, our, <laughs> if the 25 and under people in our church had decided to strike, we wouldn't make it a week. I mean, it would, it would, the whole church would go down the silver. They run everything. They, they lead children's ministry. They work lights and sound. They play in the band. They work tech. They work all over the place. But by doing it, you're saying well, you're part of it, and then they own it. They own it. They feel like an owner, right? So I have daughters that refuse to go on vacation because they want to go to church and they already signed up to do X. It's the weirdest thing in the world. I'm like, what do you mean? And so now I preached my last sermon last Sunday and it's like, they're not, they're not coming with us wherever we go. They're staying and they're going to keep doing it. But part of it was the, the conscious decision to say, no, we're going to treat you guys essentially as peers. Uh, we're going to, um, uh, not be part, we're not going to force you to be part of a large group that just kind of goes and consumes things. So we start people very young in service, and we treat them as though they're adults, essentially. So if you have a 12-year-old who enters, and they start, say, being a helper in children's ministry or something like that, not a teacher, but a helper, uh, or they're in the lobby handing out bulletins or something as people walk in, uh, by the time they hit 18, right about the time that the normal church says, okay, now you're free to attend grown-up church. They've spent six years serving. So when they go to college, you're getting a totally different kid than somebody who's essentially pacified all the way through high school. And then, oh, yeah, now now we're going to expect something of you. And then they come to college and they expect to continue to consume stuff and only hang out with college kids. So they end up down the road being spiritually malformed by that uh, as opposed to being kind of treated there. Now, that does mean you're going to need to put up with some mistakes. Okay, they're going to blow stuff up occasionally, but that's okay. Uh, in case you haven't noticed, adults do that too. So, you know, it's a tax you pay on, on, on the mission that you're trying to, uh, and I know what some of you are going to say, that's the next truishism, but Tim, kids today are not as mature as they used to be. And my point is the parents aren't as mature as they used to be. Okay? And, and, and my, my view is... Um, you want to do good children's ministry, you invest in the parents. Because they're 24-7 children's ministry and you're one hour. Uh, strong marriages, pour into the parents, teach them how to be parents. Don't take the ball from them. Okay? And if, if you're a teammate, you're running down the court with them or whatever, and they pass you the ball, you pass it right back to them as fast as you can. You let them, no, we're not, we're not surrogate parents to your kids. We are mentors for you who are parents to the kids. God called you to do that. And so one of the things that that does is as you pour into the marriages, it lowers the divorce rate in your church. We've had three in 12 years. They all happened in the same summer. It was awful. We've had three in 12 years. Um, in both cases, it was families where the kids were, it was, they were child-centered families and the kids went away to college. 
And so those of you who are familiar with family systems theory, that's no surprise. That, that, that is like, I think the most common years for a fair, number one is the first pregnancy of the wife. Number two is when the, when the uh, first kid goes to college. And the reason is the, the marriage starts to, they're to all orient around the kid. So you displace the kid, the marriage folds. It's like the foundation of the house just left. So um, invest in the parents, uh, teach young people without Christian parents how to do it. Because that's the other thing is you can't assume, in, in our case, we've got lots of kids that come to church that don't have parents with them. Um, so uh, we have to try to teach them, okay, here's how you be a Christian boyfriend or girlfriend. Here's how you be a Christian young man, Christian young woman. Here's how to stay married. Here's the kind of person to look for. Here's how you hold it together when you guys get married. And you have to do some of that teaching along the way. And they're fascinated by that stuff. They, they eat it up. In fact, it's a series we're doing right now, right, in youth ministry. Um, and so th I'm, I'm trying to give you things that I think can help every church. They're not, they're not just for larger churches or, or things like that. This is one uh, that everybody can really do. So, again... Just realize before you throw the rocks at the kids for being not mature enough, remember <laughs> their parents are generally a lot less mature than parents used to be. You know, by the time that uh, somebody was 30 years old, if you go back a generation or two, the guy had fought in World War II, he had, you know, done all sorts of stuff. Uh, and now at, at 25 or 30, the guy's just cutting down on his video game time. But he's, he's now a father, right? So you have to kind of figure out, now we can sit and lament that. Or we can do something about it. I'd like to do something about it. Next, uh, the idea that discipleship happens through intellectual study. Now, to the point yesterday about attendance, it does take study. Don't, don't, let me just understand what I'm saying. You got to teach people. Uh, but actual discipleship, where a person becomes a lifelong follower of Jesus, happens through the following. So there is an unequivocal teaching component to it. But what I want to introduce you to is kind of a concept. I've kind of coined the discipleship train, all right? Simple concept. Uh, the idea is uh, you've got a, uh, a person. So, for instance, <clears throat> when, I, when, when we started, uh, I was senior minister. DJ Iverson was younger. Some of you know him. He's been in youth ministry and other things around here. DJ does all of our graphic design, associate pastor now. Uh, DJ's significantly younger than me, but he was single at the time. And so I kind of mentored DJ. DJ... Um, brought Scotty Cowan uh, in under the, him as an intern and uh, worked with him until he was ready to take over youth ministry. And then DJ moved out and Scotty moved in. Well, attached to Scotty were other young guys along the way that he began to, to mentor. So we got this one kid, Ricky Rodriguez, who's a kind of a, a force of nature, but raw. He came, became a Christian during COVID. Uh, the guy has no fear at all. The first Sunday he shows up to church, he puts a huge... It makes has a flag made with our church logo on it in black and white, huge flag. And he has a pickup truck and he puts the flag in his pickup truck and drives up and down the street. Uh, and it's black and white, looks creepy like a cult or a militia. So I was kind of like, you know, hey, look, man, just kind of bring it down a notch. Keep the enthusiasm, but let's change the, change the method. Right? So Ricky's kind of grown on the vine, and now he's got other young guys behind him, like my, daughter's boy, my middle daughter's boyfriend, uh, Billy, who grew up, grows up in a house that's, that's really hostile to Christians. Uh, but Ricky was kind of in a similar thing and so he mentors him and Billy now runs the lights in the in the Ritz and plays electric guitar he's coming here as a freshman he was a national preacher search finalist nine months after becoming a Christian 
I mean, just, just an amazing kid. Uh, coming here, homecoming king of the high school. And behind him, you've got Joseph Burroughs, who's uh, finally the lights come on for him. He's younger. He's probably a, a sophomore maybe in high school. But do you see how there's a train from one person and getting people to ride along with you? It's not, here, let me sit down, let's meet once a week and let me teach you something. It's follow me as I follow Christ, right? And so then, whoever's in the front of the train, even if a car falls off in the front, you've got plenty of cars left, right? Whereas if you're, you're sitting and everything has to be one-on-one, every, I'm not saying that's bad. I mean, there's time for that, but it's, it's more, um, now listen, I'm going to treat you as though you and I are doing the same thing, because here's why. If you're a, a mature disciple and they're riding along with you, they're doing your discipleship program by virtue of riding along with you. So if you have somebody who is you know, good at studying the word and praying and doing these things, and you have somebody with you by, by nature, they're going through a mature disciples discipleship program, not the milk, which is why they grow faster. Yeah. It's like feeding your baby Red Bull, right? <laughs> that kid's going to go fast, right? <laughs> so don't do that, Brian. I'm not going to do that. All right, so uh, one of the ways to do this is, is give them access to leaders. And I don't mean just anybody. Give them access to the best of the best of your leaders. The best of the best. Uh, somebody asked yesterday, I think it might have been you. Somebody over here asked yesterday, what do I do if my elders don't care about new people? And I was like, you know, my initial thought was to get new elders. Then it was leave that church. And then I was like, nah. Um, probably the best way uh, to do it is to get them in proximity to new people Put them in the lobby welcoming people. Uh, put them in, in proximity to new people to where they have to care because they know the people. Yeah. But what ends up happening over time is you have elders or whatever, and they basically hang out in meetings and view that as their area of service. Uh, our board, uh, I've got one guy who plays the drums in the band. He's good, too. Uh, I've got one guy who's the superintendent of a school district and works the nursery mm-hmm. on the weekends. Babies. And uh, the other guy works the lobby. And you have me. I'm involved too. So you have like, those are the four right now. And we're all, but we're all neck deep in new people, whether it's babies, brand new to the earth, <laughs> brand new to the church, or, or, and then Mark plays in the band. And it's a good role model for people to see him doing that and then, um, and then serving in leadership of the church too. It's like most people don't think a drummer could you know, be capable of anything, really, but other than playing well. So we're all very proud of Mark. All right. Anyways, um, moving on. I want to be careful with this one so I'm not misunderstood. Uh, Theological agreement is required for collaboration. That's the truishism. The truth is playing well with others is part of your witness, and it's smart. Uh, One of the reasons we got spared during COVID was because prior to it, we had a positive relationship with John Paul the Great Catholic University, which is on the same street we are and down the way. They are a film school. And when COVID hit, uh, they offered us, or we asked and they then offered, why don't you guys come in and use our film studios to record your services? And we'll help you film them and, and, and produce them online. And so we did. They weren't supposed to let us in at the time. They were supposed to be shut down, but we snuck in there and then under cover of darkness uh, filmed our, our services. They had a podcast too. I started a podcast and kept our church informed that way. So the next time when we were finally open and they came to us and they said, hey, we want to do our graduation ceremony in your building. We said, please do. 
All right, how much is it going to cost? Nothing. Come in. You want to do it again next year? We'll do it, we'll do it again next year. And since then, they send us interns to the building, so we were able to staff our theater uh, uh, staff with their interns. Uh, and we continue to have a great relationship with them. They do all sorts of fundraisers at our building. They do all sorts of stuff. But had I said, no, that's Catholic. I'm not going to film in a Catholic studio. Um, <laughs> well, you're not filming anywhere. Or it'd be me on my iPhone in my living room instead of these really polished, sharp-looking uh, studio things. Uh, and so all I'm saying is you don't have to. There are times where you have to just maintain your sense of self and you say, I can't, I, we can't go there. But in order for us to get that building built, those, that was two, those were two historic buildings in a downtown area in Southern California. You're not touching those as a church unless you've already worked pretty hard to develop a reputation in the community as somebody who's good to play in the sandbox with. So you don't have to do that. And I just think especially uh, as Churches of Christ kind of are contracting, we're going to have fewer and fewer and fewer people at the old preacher's gatherings and stuff like that to the point that it would be good for us to get out and get some ideas and to build some relationships with others. And, uh, and it doesn't have to be the Catholics or anything else, but, but one of the chief advocates of our project was a Mormon guy who, who's on the city council and cheerled, cheerled for it and still does. Our mayor, who was walking across the street, he's Mormon too, as is his wife. Uh, and so my question is, okay, well, well, they don't have a problem. What's my problem? I'm not saying you go worship with them or whatever, or, or that nothing matters. I'm just saying when it comes down to doing certain things that that allow you to move things forward and are good for your city or community, I think it's wise. Um, Question. Yeah. If this is good for Church of Christ and Catholics, isn't it good for a small town that has five Churches of Christ in it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I understand what you're saying through your question. I do, uh, absolutely, unequivocally. Hey, I do have a question. Yeah. Because it's related to your mayor. One of the ladies that I mentored, she's a 40-year-old drug addict who left and eventually became part of our church. And, and she now is the head of the drop-in center for mm -hmm. a Quaker church yeah. in downtown where all the homeless people come in. Uh -huh. And she deals with anywhere from 20 to 40 homeless people okay. every day. Feeds them, takes care of them, and all the people who work with her are volunteers from the community. These are the people that if they didn't have that, would turn to crime to, uh, mm -hmm. to get food for them and for their kids and have a place, you know, all of the stuff that deals with homelessness. She's an amazing okay. person. But the mayor of the city wants to shut her down because he wants all those people to leave the city. That's complicated. Um, like in our case, one of the handshake agreements was you can't do stuff that's going to draw homeless to the street. Yeah. And that's because every business owner on that street is already negative in homeless people. And they walk over feces and syringes to get into their businesses. They're not looking for more of that experience. So now I can sit there and go, or I can go, okay, as a Christian, I can't, I can't ignore the homeless. I can't do that. Do I have to do it this way? Or can I find another way to do it that doesn't hurt my neighbors? Because loving your neighbor applies to all your neighbors, not just certain neighbors, right? 
So if I want to be a good neighbor to the businesses around me, how do I come up with a solution? And in our case, it was we're going to work with people who do this, and that's their thing. So we support the COPS program of the local police department. We support uh, Interfaith, which is a local kind of homeless uh, organization. Um, we're running out of time, so let me move forward. And then, uh, But you have a good, you, you know, that's a, those kinds of questions come up every time you're doing. Um, uh, I'm going to end with, with this, okay, with an excerpt of a sermon. Uh, uh, I'm not going to preach it. I'm just going to read it to you. Um, and this is not on the slide. Apologetics, okay, uh, used to bore the spit out of me. Uh, I never really cared for it. And, and it was it used to be that science was the big conundrum in apologetics. It's not anymore. Uh, the overriding existential crisis that most people uh, have as they're growing up now are essentially that Christians are the reason for the problems that are going on in the world. They're the racists. They hate education. They hate uh, health care. Um, they hate this and that and the other, right? Um, I think it's a great opportunity for us to start thinking through, okay, how are we going to respond to that? And if you're not telling folks the truth about who they are, right? Okay, who are Christians really? And who, uh, so, so here's uh, an excerpt, uh, and it starts with the idea that, uh, you know, uh, here we go. Uh, uh, the, kind of the attack on Christians in general and dealing with the issue of um, uh, Christians are all bad people, essentially. Right? So um, this is uh, borrowed heavily from a book by a, a gal named Rebecca McLaughlin called Confronting Christianity. All right? Christians are the largest health care provider in the world. Period. Fact. Catholic Church alone owns and operates 26% of the world's hospitals. Alone, okay. Um, let alone, think of all the other medical mission efforts. I mean, my, my two oldest daughters were born at Dallas Presbyterian Hospital, and and uh, um, and then think about St. Jude, right? And just on and on and on. You could go down the healthcare road forever. Think about the Ebola virus and that broke out. Who was there first? Think about when COVID broke out. Who showed up in Central Park with trailers? It was like them or hate them. Franklin Graham was there. Um, education. Christians aren't educated people. Well, we started Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Dartmouth, uh, started by Christians. I mean, Harvard was originally started by a pastor to train clergy. Yeah. Okay. Internationally, it's the same. Oxford, Cambridge, started by Christians here in California, USC. You want a, you want a jaw dropper, go to the entrance on the backside of USC. There's a big old uh, statue there with scripture on it. You would never, you would never know today. Um, you can go on through, uh, how about uh, orphan care? Who does most of that in the world? What people group does the most? That would be Christians. What percentage of the children's homes do you think were founded, funded, and sustained by Christians? Christians give roughly double the amount of money to charity that others do by percentage. Overwhelmingly the first and most persistent of all groups who work in disaster relief. How about homelessness? Yeah, we lead the way there. How about care for the elderly? Yep. How about blood drives? We give more blood than everybody else. Um, now, we could go on and on with this, but there are facts about Christianity that if the message alone is, I'm not saying it's never time for this, I'm just saying the message alone is, uh, hey, people hate us because we're bad people, so we need to be better people. That's the sermon they hear, then that's who they become. We're bad people, and we're trying to reach this lofty ethical standard set by the secular press. Okay? So then you have... Uh, others, and then I'll, I'll, I'll end here. Recent study found nearly 40% of Americans 
raised in non-religious homes become religious as adults, while only 20% of those raised Protestant switch. Okay, if that trend continues, what that means is your secular friends are twice as likely to raise children who become Christians as I am to raise kids who become non-religious. Okay, Christians and Jews are the most educated groups in the country, in America. They have the most degrees. They're typically the most educated groups in the country. Uh, And they also have the smallest educational gap between men and women. Uh, We, Christianity is the most diverse religion ethnically in the world. It's not even close. Like, Hinduism, pretty monolithic for the most part. Uh, You go on through, but Christianity is by far the most ethnically diverse religion in the world. And obviously there are caveats here about Sunday mornings and, and that kind of thing, but overall. Generally... Uh, the more educated a person becomes, the more, not less, religious they become. So there's a myth that you get more education, you get less religious. That's not the case. And she demonstrates this in in the book. Uh, And often, thanks in large part to immigration, the orthodoxy of Christianity is getting stronger, not weaker. Things are getting more conservative. And anybody who says that they're not isn't paying attention, largely because of immigration or it tends to be more, they tend to be more conservative, people who immigrate from other countries. The fastest growing Christian movement in the world at the moment is the Iranian church. The Iranian church. And then, uh, I'll wrap it up here, Christianity is spreading so fast in China, experts think it'll overtake the U.S. in total number of Christians by 2030. Oh, that's already happened. Yep. Okay, well, there you go. Yeah, 20 years in China. Okay. There are 10 times more Christians. And the majority of... The, uh, the majority NBA majority Christian country by 2050, all right? So what I'm saying to you is when your teens show up and they hear all this, if you're not doing something to help them put those, uh, the comments and the claims of others in perspective, it will find that in you. So this is a good time to brush up on some of your apologetics, especially the existential apologetics, not the science as much. It's more the existential. Why is there so much suffering in the world? Uh, why are so many Christians awful people? You know, that kind of stuff. And to think through that and be able to articulate, I'm over time, i got to stop. Hey, guys, thank you for being here. If I can help you in any way, uh, email me or something like that. I'll do the best I can. What was that book you mentioned? Confronting Christianity, Rebecca McLaughlin. Must read. Got to do it. It's awesome. Thanks, guys.